Let's make our way this morning to the book of Hebrews. We are now in chapter 8, more than halfway through. We're studying the new covenant. The new covenant declared, new high priest was presented to us. He will administer this new covenant. Chapter 8, verse 10, please follow along as I read. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Pray with me this morning, would you? Our Father, as we turn our hearts to you, we ask to be taught of you, to be given your knowledge from you, through your word, and in this dynamic that you have proclaimed should be done in your church, the preaching of your word. So from here, in the depths of this preacher, to those who hear in the depths of their heart, we join together now, Lord, asking for your insight, for your sovereign reign over our minds to learn and know, accept your truths. And in your sovereignty over our hearts, let us live these truths in the full comfort and knowledge of the Lord's declarations. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This chapter began by stating that this was the main point. Certainly is a multifaceted main point to have such a minister, such a great high priest as Jesus, and such a mediator who mediates a better covenant established on better promises, the sole promises of God. It is indeed a study of the sovereignty of God over man and over his own. The problem with men is the problem with all of us. We don't like being pushed around. Let's all admit it. Can we say out loud, I don't like being pushed around. See, everybody joined me on that one quite willingly. I asked for an amen, and I look out, and they're like, well, not me, man. But I said, push around, and you're there, baby. 
You resonated. You get it. You're on board. I don't like being pushed around. That is, in very few settings, admirable. In this setting, it is the opposite of admirable. It is rebellious. It has to deal with authority. And who gets to move whom anyway? Hold your ground, we're told. If you're fighting a war, okay. And your commander says so. But if you're holding your ground against God, you're in a troubling position. If you're attempting to hang on to what he says is passing away, is obsolete, i.e. the Mosaic law, then you fight against God, who by an oath is establishing a new covenant, that by its very substance declares the submission of all upon whom it is applied. It is a shame if we are pushed around by something of lesser value to motivate us and thereby ignore the greater value of what should push us around. And purposely I have used a term push around that would stir up. I could have said influence. What influences you? And you might have all intellectually ascended, but when I said I don't like be pushed around, boy, there we were. And Israel is the same way. They don't like being pushed around. And once they've got something, they don't want anybody to take that away and replace it with something else without their permission. To include God, Jesus Christ came unto his own, and his own what? Received him not. They refused to be pushed around by the Son of God. To have it marked out that their keeping of the Mosaic law was only external, and very few had real faith, and they proved that by hanging the fulfillment of the Mosaic law on a cross. The law is dead, obsolete, and God is declaring, I will push you around, Israel. These are promises. Pushy promises, but they are blessings to the desperate. Last week we looked at the great I am and we postulated and presented that it took a great I am to accomplish the great I wills, four of which we found in our first verse of the new covenant, verse 10. 
This is the new covenant that I will make. Number one, God will make it with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. The great I am says, I will put my laws in their mind. Number two. Number three, I will write them on their hearts. And number three and number four, I will be their God. I will be their God. I will, I will, I will. God will. It's a promise. Looked at negatively. God is going to push Israel around. God is going to push around every person under his new covenant because he will. Now today we're going to look into the they shalls. Since God wills, they shall. If God leans on a man, will he not move? Can anyone resist the Lord, even the prophet asked? No. The question is, why would you want to resist the Lord apart from sin? The only reason to uh, resist the Lord God is sinful rebellion. And God is going to take away that faultiness because the first covenant stirred up those faults. We are reminded that the first covenant was not faultless. Verse 7, for if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. It was faulty. And what was the fault of the first covenant? It wasn't the laws themselves. It's what the laws did in the hearts of sinful men. Verse 8. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. It was a two-party covenant. God said, I will bless if you obey. They didn't obey, so they got the curses. If you don't obey, I'll curse you. If you do obey, I'll bless you. Man showed he couldn't obey the law. And it killed him. It killed them. And so now God takes control. He makes a covenant with himself. Without any obligation upon those who will be under this covenant, he pushes Israel and Judah around and hence us. Today I'm here to influence you to be pushed around by God. To become one who welcomes the sovereign authority of God in your life as a blessing that you will then articulate in faith. 
Four times I will. The faultless responsibilities found in the new covenant studied last week. This morning, the faultless restitutions found in the they shalls of the next portion of the new covenant. And by the way, I will not be finished at the end of today. We still have a couple more I wills to follow for next week. I'm taking time with this because I've discovered in my years of ministry that most Christians don't understand the covenant under which they have been placed by their sovereign God. And so many of us, and I say all of us, can so easily stumble back into an idea that there is part of the Mosaic law which we are to keep. And that is not true. So we must understand the covenant that we have been given after Israel and put our faith in this covenant. Too many have been living the burden of the law of Moses and failing just like Israel and the guilt has been killing you for years. But this is the hope of a new covenant that says to you, I'm going to do it for you. But we also with that have to acknowledge we can't do it for ourselves. It takes the great I am saying, I will make this covenant. I will put my law in their heart or in their minds. I will teach them. I will put it in their heart. These are things which God said he will do. And now we move on to restitution. A great word here, and I chose it specifically, not just because it's an R word like the other three I'm going to, one I've used, two more remain, this being one, which is delightful to me. Restitution. Define restitution in the new covenant. God says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. A restitution is defined thus. Restoring something to its rightful owner. This is yours. Take it back. Restitution. In this case, it is God taking back what he rightfully owns, Israel and Judah. A second definition of restitution is this, legal action, serving to, listen, serving to cause restitution, a restoration to an original state. Legal action serving to cause restoration to an original state. We identify Israel how? They are God's chosen people who under the law rebelled against their God and so God disregarded them. 
The new covenant is the restitution of a people who have separated themselves from God in their sin, divinely brought back into ownership by God pushing them around with a new covenant. The covenant they broke didn't work for them because they were full of sin. So now God will bring restitution. Restoration to their original state. They shall be. They shall be my people. No one else's. Mine. Salvation under the new covenant is restoration to a people that had been in a condition of separation because of their sin. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, they separated themselves from the presence of God, from the fellowship with God because of sin. And God is restoring through grace. They shall be, I will, I will, I will be their God and they shall reciprocate and be my people. God's always been their God. Israel hasn't always been too thrilled about them being God's people. I'm a Jewish friend. We talk. Years ago when we first talked about Jesus, I asked her who she thought he was. Oh, she said, he's a nice Jewish boy. I said, yeah, he was. And so ever much more he is your Mashiach, your Messiah, your anointed one who's anointed to deliver you from this blindness you are in, your sin of rejection. She was rejecting Deliverance. You're not the boss of me, Jesus. You're not pushing me around. You're not telling me what I can do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's exactly what Israel had done in the past. The loyalty they should have had to the Lord was broken. And only through this new covenant can it be fully restored or even better, fully attained. God is saying, I am your God and you are my people. I so swear. Israel had turned from God. You see what? You, you have two choices in the whole of your life, in the whole of the world. Listen to me. You've got the choice to be pushed around by your sin and it will rule you. And you will submit to it because it is you're sovereign. Or you can turn to God and be ruled by Him. And He will push you around in good directions. He will put your feet on the paths of righteousness. He will cause you to walk in His ways. He will lead you beside still waters. And by the way, in that 23rd Psalm, do you realize that staff works in two ways? 
Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. Come here or kapow. That's really what it is used for in the stockman sense of the term. Israel needs to be drawn back to its rightful owner. There's no better book in the Bible to teach this than Hosea the prophet. God identified Israel as his own. He said, I will be a husband to you, Israel, and you will be my wife. But sin started pushing Israel around while they were under the law. And they left God to serve idols. So God in Hosea uses the most graphic of illustrations, the illustration of himself as the husband of Israel, and the illustration of Israel as a harlot, as a wife who is turned away from her husband to sell herself to other men, to other gods, to idols. Hosea is a book of God doing something about bringing Israel back from their harlotry. Hosea 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, listen now, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So any of you who really want to be one of these prophets of God in the modern age should really ought to read your Bible a little more carefully about what God put the real prophets through in the Old Testament. Even leaving Ezekiel aside, who had to lay on his side and lay siege to Israel for so many days, and then do it again on the other side as an illustration... Hosea gets his life to be demanded by God that he would go out and get a woman who is going to betray their marriage vows and produce children from other men so that he can be the prophet who will then declare the loving kindness of God in restitution. Goody. Go. God's pushing him around. Go marry yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. I'd like to do this whole book, but I can't. But let's just be reminded that Israel is going to be figured as the harlot wife and God as the faithful husband. I skip now to Hosea. And in Hosea, the first chapter, again, now just verse 6, as we skip down just a little bit more. So we see, now married, now verse 6, and she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, and in every case, these names of these children are going to be used as illustrations of the condition of Israel. And it's meant to be graphic, and here it is. And God said to him, so even God's not going to let him, Hosea, name his own children. 
God's got a name for them. Talk about being pushed around. So she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, to Hosea, call her name Lo-Ruhamah. This name means this. For I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel. That's exactly what the child's name means, no mercy. Many, many parents name their children Mercy. This is my daughter Mercy. Oh, that's a wonderful name. No, Hosea's daughter's named No Mercy. Here, meet my daughter. No Mercy. Not only is my life and my marriage to be a, a declaration to Israel of their harlotry, my poor children have to carry for their whole life the reality that they are a walking declaration that God will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel. And, but what will utterly take them away, he says. That's not even enough. Skip to verse 9. There's another child on the way. Verse 9, oh, let's do verse 8. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhama, she conceived and bore, to, bore a son. And then God said, call his name Lo-Ami. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. I think you're probably already making a connection to the new covenant. I will, they shalls. Because in the past... He didn't, and they weren't. Call his name Lo-Ami, which means not my people. So one kid gets to carry no mercy, and the other carries the rejection of God, all of Israel, not my people. Wonderful. This is the result of Israel's harlotry. Skip to chapter 4, if you would. Verse 11. The reality is that sin is pushing Israel around. They want to be like the nations around them. Young people, do you want to be like the kids around you? Tell me, do you? Of course you do. When I was your age, I did too. Kids around you talk a certain way. Kids around you dress a certain way. And if you have horrible parents like I had, your parents won't let you dress like they do because they're Christians. What an oppression you live. What a desperate life. Restricted from all of that wonderment? Yeah, there were fashions in my day. And they were as bad as yours. There were fads in my day, and they were as bad as yours. But guess what? Let me just not camp on you kids. They were, they were even admitting this stuff. Let's, let's go on to middle age. You middle-aged people, you don't want to be like everyone around you, do you? Like all the world that's around you. Want to live in houses like they live, drive cars like they do, have jobs like they are, be free like they are, go wherever they go and add church in on the side? Of course not. How about you old people? Oh, no, you're not tested when you're old. When you're old, it's all done, right? 
seen our way clear. It's all on easy street from now. Don't they call it the golden years? Somebody lied. They're golden if you walk with the Lord, if you want to be pushed around by the Lord and his law to what is good for you, what protects you, what blesses you. But Israel was dissatisfied with their God as husband. They wanted to do what the world does, and so they went after what the world does, and they became prostitutes. They sold themselves. From the hand of God to idols. Listen, Hosea 4 verse 11. Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols. Oh, tell us what to do. And their staff informs them. This is the divination rod used in the world of pagan soothsaying. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices. Listen, this is what they were doing. They offer sacrifices on the mountains and burn incense on the hills under oaks, poplars, terebinths, because the shade is good. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry and the brides commit adultery. If you go after the world, the world is going to suck you into sexual sin. That's why they were under the trees where they worshiped, where they could lay down with their sex partners and produce children to the idols. Now, this might be a hard topic for some of you in church, but that's exactly the warning parents need to give their children today. If you don't realize the paganism of our culture with the LGBTQ agenda, and that's not just enough. There's regular good old sexual sin between a man and a woman, between a boy and a girl that can still enslave you and still does outside of marriage. There shall not be this. If you're pushed around by God. But if you're pushed around by the world, if you're pushed around by the present idol of our day, which must be the most heinous God to have ever walked the earth, and it walks its ways into libraries, and it seduces children at the youngest age, and the parents love it so, and bring them and offer them to these gods. It's in our culture. What are you talking about? And this was Israel being pushed around by idols. And so strong is the push in our culture now that by and large, we as the church have stopped speaking against it. We don't even talk against divorce anymore because that's not the big issue. We don't talk about the adultery that causes divorce because that's not the big issue. We don't even talk about the gay rights. That's not even the big thing. It's gotten so far we're into transvestitism. That's the issue of the day. And the rest are being laid aside. Tell me this sin isn't pushing on us and pushing us around. Where's the hope? You see, the problem is this, and it was, it was illustrated so clearly uh, by a rock and roll band back in the day, as I'm now allowed to say, without telling you what day that was. But Mick Jagger had a band called the Rolling Stones. And they had a hit song. 
And we still hear it today. It still becomes the bumper rotation in certain shows. I can't get no satisfaction. Though I try, and I try, and I try, I can't get no satisfaction. Hey, hey, hey. And I sing it because they sing it. It is the dissatisfaction of sin. It is pursuing the sin of the world like only a rock star can do. Everything, money, fame, the whole works. I can't get no satisfaction. But I try. That's what happened to Israel. They're pushed around with their sin and they can't get any satisfaction. And the Lord has allowed Israel in the same wise as the rock stars of the earth. And he made them so. This people that came into the land and took them by storm. And Jericho fell. And Ai went down. And Og the king was killed. And they ran the Canaanites out. And they ran the Amazites out. And they ran the Perizzites out. And they ran all these people out of the land and took the land. And they were living large. They were in prosperity. They were the ones. And they looked at the nations next to them and they said, hmm, that looks like fun. Maybe we could do that and worship God. And they tried. And they tried. And they tried but they couldn't get any satisfaction. And they went deeper and deeper. So what is this declaration? Why does it mean anything? It means so much because of where they were, how far the law and their faking, keeping it, got them. So God comes to the rescue. Because when you're in sin, you can't rescue yourself. And some of you are right now. You can't be brought up without a sovereign act of God pushing you to it. And so even in this book that declares the harlotry of Israel and the punishment for it, hope is sounded by God for the future. Hosea, even in just in the second chapter, not very far into the book, listen. Verse 16, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord, now pay attention here, that you will call me my husband. See, when Israel left, they were, they were no longer proud of their God. They didn't call God, the Heavenly Father, their husband. He says, they were, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. See, isn't that the problem? God's pushing us around. He's the master, and I don't like it. Or God's my husband, and he protects me, and he provides for me, and he honors me, and I'm so glad to be his wife. You know, we've heard about trophy wives, haven't we? Ever, anyone ever heard about that? I mean, I got one. Do your best. 
I don't say that jokingly. I really think that I got a treasure. I hit the jackpot, baby. And I like having her on my arm. <laughs> now, I know there's pride in that. Now, I'm working on it. But what I wanted to bring this into the world, we don't hear about trophy husbands that often, do we? Trophy wives, yes, but trophy husbands, I mean, who's that? Especially in our culture where men are denigrated and the position of husband isn't honored by any class, including, let's be honest, the church. This will be in that day that you will call me my husband. For I will take her from the, her mouth, take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall no longer be remembered by their name no more. Hosea 2, verse 19, now, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in, listen, loving kindness and mercy. A trophy husband. Proud to be the people of God. I couldn't help but ask myself this question. Do people know that I am proud of my God? Do people know that that's who I belong to? That my Jesus, the head of the church, of which we are betrothed as the bride of Christ, different from Israel, that's not the same thing. We're the bride of Christ. Israel's the bride of the Father. Do we say in rejoicing, Woohoo, this is my God. <laughs> what kind of God you got? Show me your God. <laughs> what a wimp. You mean that's how your God takes care of you? Really? He makes you do that? My God gives me an inheritance in heaven forever. What you got? My God died in my place on the cross. What you got? Oh, you're still paying. You're paying your God, aren't you? And you try, and you try, and you try, but you can't get no satisfaction. They shall be my people. And be proud of it. And this state of pride in their Lord God can only come about through the goodness of God. It can only come by the goodness of God. It can't come any other way. Not by the goodness of people. Not by the goodness of Israel. Not by the goodness of anyone. But by their God. I want you... You know, we study the New Covenant and we study it so often out of its context in Jeremiah. In Hebrews, this is an excerpt taken from the prophet Jeremiah. And there's words around it. Jeremiah is also a prophet that is pronouncing judgment on the people of Judah. And this is the hope that is given, though they must go through their punishment, this is what God will do. The context of the new covenant 
is this. Jeremiah 31, verse 1. I want you to notice the parental aspect now of God with his people. Verse 1, at the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when I went to give him rest. This is a reference to when they rebelled against God, when he was trying to give them the promised land, and they kept rebelling against him, and they listened to ten spies rather than the two good spies. They listened to the ten spies and said, they're too big. We can't do it. Our God can't win. And isn't that just like us in the church today? So they had to wander for 40 years, and those that didn't die during that time or by the sword and survived, found grace in the wilderness. Verse 3 now, the Lord has appeared to me of old saying. This is a wonderful verse. The Lord has appeared to, of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you, listen, with an everlasting love. Therefore, in loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt. O virgin of Israel, you shall again be adorned with your tambourines. You shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. Do you see what he's saying? Even to the harlot of Israel who sold herself off. See, this ain't only happened spiritually. Israel, who has made herself a prostitute, is now going to regain her virginity status. That can only happen here with God. So that you dance again like the young maidens in the promise of your betrothal and everlasting love. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. For there shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. They'll be proud of their husband, of their God. Skipping now down to verse 9, Jeremiah 31, 9, They shall come with weeping and with supplications. I will lead them. I will listen. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. Why? For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim is another name for Israel. I'll cause them. I'll push them into line and bless them. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, "Who he who scattered Israel will gather him. Why is Israel scattered? God scattered them. But he will gather Israel and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Now I want you to listen to the goodness of God. And I will satiate, verse 14, and I will satiate the souls of the priest with abundance. And my people, listen, shall be satisfied with my goodness, 
says the Lord. You know what it means to be saved completely? It means to be satisfied with the goodness of the Lord and the sin of the world and the sin of the idols no longer has pull on you. They'll be proud of their God, no longer looking for satisfaction with the rest of the world. They will have, and they will have, and they will have satisfaction. They will be my people. And they shall know, the second, they shall know. Back in Hebrews chapter 8, now again, verse 11 None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. All shall know me. Today we still ask, Do you know the Lord? And even more so, we should ask, Does the Lord know you? But when we use this term in the Hebrew, and we bring it even into the New Covenant Greek, I want to present to you that these are covenantal language phraseologies and covenantal words. In the Hebrew, this idea of to know brings with it the idea of to make a covenant and to keep it, to make a covenant agreement, a promise and to be known as one who promises and one who keeps promises. Let me just outline this quickly, taking you on a trip through some scripture. You can turn there if you like, but you better be fast. Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew Eve. This is the covenant of marriage, of knowing both intimately and covenantally to the production of children, but it is to know in the covenantal understanding. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired, listen, a man from the Lord. Where'd the man come from? From the Lord. Don't have time to get into that. Just think on it. Deuteronomy 9.24, the knowing as covenant. God says, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I Knew you, speaking to Israel. I knew you. I covenanted with you. When he called out Abraham and Ur of the Chaldees and said, Come, I will make you a people. In Deuteronomy 34.10, covenant again. But since then there has been, there's not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, listen, whom the Lord knew face to face. A covenant man, a known man. 2 Samuel 5 of David in covenant with the Lord, verse 12. So David knew the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. The Lord knew David, the Lord called David, and David knew the Lord in covenant fashion. Jeremiah 1.5, even from before birth, God's knowing of Jeremiah the prophet, listen, before I formed you, God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Does he just mean he knew of him? No, he knows of everybody. But he knows Jeremiah how? In a covenant way, this covenant way. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I set you apart for me. 
I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So, here's some free news. Life begins when God says it begins. Even in the womb, he can covenantally know the child. Enough said, I must move. In Matthew 7, 23, we realize that to be in covenant relationship with God is very important. And then I will declare to them, says Jesus, I never knew you. Doesn't mean he never knew who they were. He never knew them in the covenant sense of salvation. Depart from me, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So what's going on here? They shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest. God's pushing those whom he will to him. Only God can do this. None shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, Know the Lord. This implies knowing him. It implies possessing knowledge of God. And only one place do we find this accurately described and it's not yet. But pastor, you said we're new covenant people. Yes, and I'm not done yet. I'll get there. Right now we're just speaking for Israel. Matthew 13, 45 through 46, Jesus says, speaking of kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. How did he know to buy it? This kingdom. Why would he sell all? Isaiah 54, 13, prophecy of Israel. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children. Who teaches them? God teaches them. Isaiah 2, 3, my people shall come and say, my people shall come and say, come, let us go up the mountain to the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law in this kingdom, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Kingdom. Illustrated in Isaiah 11.8, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And isn't that the part that we like to play around with and talk about? You know, lions laying down with lambs. And here, a, a child laying down by a cobra's hole. Ain't that cool? Yeah, but it isn't that big a deal. It's in the Bible. We're to be looking at it as a glorious thing. Even this, the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. The protective hand of God in the kingdom. Reversing the curse to quite a degree. But listen to verse 9, Isaiah 11. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Listen, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Why? Why? Because he's there. 
He's to be known. He's being proclaimed. He is teaching the people. Zechariah said in 8.7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east, from the land of the west. I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Well, Pastor Fred, what are we, what are we doing? Do we, do we have to wait? Do we have to wait for the kingdom for this to be fulfilled? Yes. In completion, yes. In foretaste, no. We are new covenant believers and we are experiencing a foretaste of the kingdom. Of the kingdom. And God is the teacher. And Jesus is the revealer. In Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, at this time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son. Listen, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Well, what are we going to do then? Listen. And the one to whom the Son reveals him. God, the Son, will push you into the knowledge of God, the Father, as he wills. And that happened to every one of you who believed. You didn't look for him. You weren't searching for him. You couldn't find him. You were at a loss. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were a harlot like Israel, even if you were trying to keep the law. And he showed you the Father. And all of a sudden, blessing came. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Listen, come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you tired of sinning? Please raise your hand. Is your sin all gone right now? No, but it's covered right now. And now you know God. And sin can't push you around anymore. You are dead to sin and alive to Christ. But he says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Rest from being pushed around by sin. Take my yoke upon you. Upon you, listen, and learn from me. We are a foretaste of the learning. We get to go to church. We get to learn about Jesus and God and his word. We get to proclaim him in the world until kingdom comes. That yoke is a yoke. It's work. It's easy. My burden is light. But Christian, we do have to pick it up and put our neck in the yoke. He's pushing us. Start moving. 1 John 5. We know that we are of God. Verse 19. Oh, do we? Yes. We know that we are of God. 
The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. They can't get no satisfaction. They're being pushed around by sin. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding. He's given us an understanding that we may know him. We have a foretaste of kingdom glory and knowledge now. We know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Eternal life isn't perfectly keeping the law of Moses. Can I use a sound effect? That's wrong. It is believing this is true. We know him. He's made himself known. How do I even want to do this stuff? And know him more. Because God has made him known. And what is true is the faith that God is true. And that is eternal life. Not that you're true. But that he is. And even after kingdom. There's more promise to be fulfilled. And here it is. Revelation 21, 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Do you believe that? Because it's covenant promise. God has taught you. You're his. And he's our God. Let's be proud of it. Let's pray. Hear us, O Lord God. We the sheep of your pasture. We, Lord Jesus, who are led by you in your headship of the church, that our faith be a new covenant faith, a faith devoid of ourselves, but confident in the I wills of God and the they shalls that we are part of. Oh Lord God, we trust in you, for you have called us, and through your Son's blood you have saved us, and by the Spirit indwelled in us you have guaranteed us, and are sanctifying us, unto that day when even your people Israel cry out, you are 
our God. And we are your people. In Jesus' name we look forward to the fulfillment of this promise. By Jesus' name we claim this truth. Everybody join me in saying, Amen.